Uh, will you pray with me before we jump into the word today? Uh, Father God, we just want to thank you for this beautiful uh, sunny day. Uh, we thank you for, the, for, being, for bringing us together into this space. Lord, now as we approach your word, we just pray that we can hear your voice in it. That you can speak to each of us in the way that we need to hear. Uh, encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Uh, convict us where we need to be convicted. Uh, and send us out uh, with a desire to love the people around us. Amen. All right, we are in the second week of Advent. Advent is the time of uh, preparation uh, for Christmas, for the preparing our hearts and minds for the coming of Jesus at Christmas. Uh, if you were with us last week, um, we, well, if you've been with us for this whole year, we've been working through the book of Matthew, uh, which brings us into an interesting space as we end the year and as we end the book of Matthew. Uh, we, the, the book of Matthew ends with the crucifixion, the resurrection. It ends with Easter. Uh, which creates this, this kind of weird thing, right? We're, gonna, we're in which we're during, in Christmas time, which is at the beginning of Matthew. But if we're going to complete the book, we have to look at Easter. So we're doing Easter for Christmas, right? Um, hopefully, last week, uh, you, you were able to see uh, that, that it isn't as strange to, to look at Easter around Christmas time because it's part of a whole overarching story of God throughout Scripture, we saw last week that, that the mission that God had given to Adam and Eve was then passed on to Abraham, which was passed on to Israel, which was eventually given to the church. Uh, and that, that mission is to, is to take the broken pieces of the world, is to take the, the, the things that are, that, are, that are busted or hurting and work with God to put them back together into something beautiful. The mission that, that Israel was given was to be a light on a hill to attract the entire world to them, just for people to ask, what's going on here? And for them to be able to respond, hey, we've got this God thing, come join us. That mission was then given to the church in which we care for each other in a way that the rest of the world is supposed to look at us and go, what's going on there? And the response is the same. Hey, we've got this God thing, why don't you come join us? <clears throat> this week, we're going to continue to look, uh, look at look through the book of Matthew and continue to, to study Easter for Christmas. But we're going to do it today by taking, uh, taking a, uh, a close look at two different people um, in, the, in the story of Jesus. So last week we were at uh, the Last Supper. We were at, the, the, um, we were at communion or we were, we were at, that, at that table. And we're going to stay there today. But I want to I look at two different people who run through the rest of the story. What ends up happening is you go from the, the Last Supper table um, and then into the space where Jesus gets arrested uh, and, and ends up bring, going before the, the high priest. In the midst of that story, we get to see two different people uh, fail epically. Uh, you get to see the story of Judas, which we'll look at today, and how he uh, works through his, his stuff in this particular story. But we're also going to take a look at Peter. We're going to compare the two of them uh, to see how they're similar to each other. We're going to contrast them a little bit. And I think what you're going to end up finding is that in those two stories, you're going to find yourself relating to them maybe even more than you wanted to or hoped you would. So we're going to do that today by looking at Matthew 26. So turn with me to Matthew 26. But before we, start go, before we get started... Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the first person we're going to look at. Let's start with, with Judas. And before we look at him in the story, there's a few things that can be really helpful when we're trying to get inside of who Judas is, what is he all about, how do we relate to him. Um, and because, because, um, because there's a couple unique things about Judas. Uh, but first, before we go to the unique things about Judas, uh, I want to talk about the non-unique things about Judas. 
I say, I think in my mind, and maybe for many of you, uh, when you think of Judas, you think of someone who's evil. Uh, you think of somebody who betrayed Jesus and therefore it needs to be thought of as horrible throughout time. Um, actually, I'm always disappointed when we look at his depictions in film because he always tends to be dark and shady and he tends to be sneaky looking and all of those things. Um, and I don't think that's helpful because I don't think that's the portrait the Bible paints of him. Because the first thing that we see when we look at who Judas is is that he's one of the 12. Now, maybe that seems obvious to you and because it, it is, but it's not insignificant. So rabbis gathered together disciples, and Jesus gathered together 12. We see throughout the rest of the scripture that there were a lot of people who followed Jesus. There were far more than 12. There were crowds, some of which were just there casually, but we also know from scripture that many more of them were there more regularly. People that followed Jesus but were not part of his inner circle, not part of the 12. But Judas was. What that means is that he was selected by Jesus just like the rest of the disciples were. That he was trusted by him just like the rest of the disciples were. That he, got to, that he got to see the things that they got to see. He got to do the things that they did. Judas being one of the twelve means he healed people or cast out demons or did those kinds of things. And that's an important thing to remember. Judas was, however, unique to the disciples in one way. He was the only disciple from Judea. So if we can throw up this map, there, were two, there are two major regions at this time of Jewish, Jewish settlements in the area. Um, you had people who came from the, from the south, Judea, and you had people who came from the region of Galilee up north. Now, that matters because those two regions were, while both Jewish, were culturally a little bit different. Uh, Judea was a place uh, in which you, people tended to be richer, uh, more educated, more sophisticated, more culturally aware. Uh, they, were, they, were, they, were more, they, were, they were higher class, if you will, uh, in Judea at that particular time. Whereas in the north, in Galilee, that would, be your, that would be your West Virginia, right? You consider them to be more rednecks? Is that fair? Who's anybody here from West Virginia? <laughs> but you're, you're a little more backwoods, you're a little less educated, uh, you tend to be more blue-collar up in Galilee. Nothing wrong with that, it just is, right? There's a different accent, everything, right? You, in the story, uh, the story of Peter we're going to look at today, people recognize Peter as being from Galilee because he's got a Galilean accent, right? There's a, it's a different kind of space in Galilee than it is in Judea. The other 11 are from Galilee. Judas is from Judea. That matters maybe a little bit. It's, like, it's, it's easy then to assume that he would have been a little more educated, a little more sophisticated than his colleagues from the north. The other thing we know about Judas is that he was the keeper of the money. We talked about that last, uh, talked about that last week for a little bit. That's also not insignificant. Um, we, it, it can be hard for us to, to really grasp how important that is in our day and age when we have banks and money is represented by numbers. Uh, that's not the case in this day and age, right? Uh, in this particular day and age, the, the keeper of the money had a physical sack filled with coins, with money, right? Which means that you, the person you give that bag to is trusted, is important, because if he decides to run, there goes all your money and you're not going to get it back. So the fact that Judas is the keeper of the money means that he was viewed by the rest of his colleagues as someone to be trusted with something like that. Which leads us to the final thing that we see about Judas, that he was seen by the disciples as a good person. 
It's easy for us to depict him as this kind of shady kind of character, but I don't think it's helpful, like I already mentioned, because Jesus doesn't see him that way, and the disciples don't either. I, I, I said this last week, but when Jesus at the, at the Last Supper says, tonight someone's going to betray me, the disciples don't immediately go, obviously Judas, right? The horns gave him away, right? No, they don't do that, right? They actually, they, they don't point to him at all. Each of them goes, it's not me, right? Judas then leaves, Right? But the scripture says then Judas leaves, and the disciples don't, even then don't assume he's going to do anything wrong. They assume he's going to go give money to the poor. The disciples view Judas as a good person, and I think that matters a lot as we look through our story here moving forward. So Matthew 26, or 23 says this, Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, You have said so. So what went wrong? We have this portrait of a smart, sophisticated, trusted, compassionate person throughout Scripture when we look at Judas. A person, even up until the Last Supper, appears to be fully committed to Jesus. Now, I mentioned this last week as well. We're not 100% sure why Judas did what he did, what led him down that particular path. There are a number of different theories. I think two of the, the two that are the most compelling to me are either that Judas was struggling with greed, because in the book of John it says that he was the keeper of the money but used to take some for himself. And so perhaps he, he had kind of walked down this progression of self-justification. Hey, I'm smarter than these guys are. I'm, keep, I'm the keeper of the money. I have tasks that they don't have. I should take a little bit for myself. I'm not hurting anybody. And so then when 30 pieces of silver come, maybe that was compelling. I don't know, perhaps. Others have suggested that maybe Judas actually uh, was trying to start the revolution. Right? We know from out, throughout Scripture that the disciples didn't understand when Jesus said he was the Messiah what that meant. And most, of the, most people in the in, who at the time were looking forward to the Messiah, were thinking of a military leader that was going to get rid of Rome. And so Judas had been walking with Jesus saying, this is our guy, this is the guy that's going to get out Rome, but he's taking too long. Let's get this thing moving. Right? We're at the place where we need to go. And so by selling him out, he assumes that's going to kick off the fight. Perhaps. Who knows? For today, that doesn't really matter. That's not the point that I want us to see. What I do want us to see is that Judas has obviously missed the mark. Sin has taken him off course, and as a result, he's going to experience some serious consequences. We've talked about through the entire book of Matthew that Jesus' call is for repentance towards the kingdom, and we've talked about how sin is thus missing that mark, which can lead us into, the, not lead us into the life that Jesus calls us to, but lead us into something more painful. And we see that in Judas' story here. So we have a picture of Judas. I want, to, I want you to hold that in your mind while we then move to our second person, which is from Matthew 26, 30. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee." Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. 
But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. So we have Peter. Peter, like Judas, is one of the 12. So all of the things that we talked about there, Peter's gone through all that too. But Peter's unique in one way, and that's the fact that he's the oldest of the disciples. And so he's a leader in many respects. So often the oldest gets, gets put in a position of leadership. And we actually see that, we've seen that throughout the book of Matthew. Often when the questions are asked, Peter is the one who steps forward and answers first. He's the person who, he's, he, Peter is, is my personal favorite disciple because I, I love his impulsiveness, sometimes which is fantastic, right? He jumps in, I'm going to do this thing. Sometimes that's great. I can relate to that a lot, so I like him a lot. Uh, I can also, unfortunately, relate to the second part of him. Sometimes he jumps in and nails it, but also sometimes he jumps in and completely blows it, right? Um, and we, we, we'll, we see that in the story that we're going to look at today, too. So Peter's the oldest disciple. He has this kind of leadership role, but he also has another unique thing about him, and that is that he's part of the three. So in Jesus' spheres, there were, like we had mentioned earlier, there were a number of people who followed him, in the hundreds probably. Uh, we, see, we see that at different places that would just follow him around all over the place. Then we have the 12, this more, more intimate kind of space where, there, where you have the 12 disciples. But then out of the 12 disciples, there were also three who, who were like the inner circle of the disciples. We know that that was James and John and Peter. Those three rode in the inner circle of Jesus in, in, his, top, in his top three, in his, in his close three, which we see in this part of the story, Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him and began to, to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Then he returned, and found them, found, returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. So this part of the story actually kicks off a pretty bad night for Pete. Um, it's going to get worse from here. He, he's invited into this incredibly intimate moment with Jesus. He's one of three people invited to this special place at this special time, asked specifically to support, to, to support Jesus in his hardest time. Now, before we get too, uh, too critical, we can get too critical of him, but a little bit of understanding that I think helps when you... When, uh, when you know what James and John and Peter are going through here. Because I, I don't know if you about you, if you ever wondered, why was it so hard for them to stay awake? Has anybody ever wondered that before? Like, you're in this really heightened moment. But when you understand where they've just come from, it makes a lot more sense. They have just come from the Last Supper. They've come from the Passover meal. And if you know anything about the Passover meal, the Passover meal includes five cups. And you drink out of each of those five cups, and those five cups are all filled with wine. So these guys have just had five glasses of wine. Now it all of a sudden starts to make more sense in why they're so sleepy, <laughs> right? If you've had five glasses of wine and you're trying to stay up in the middle of the night, it's hard, right? So we can give them a little bit of, of leeway on that. But at the same time, they were asked specifically to stay awake. Now, I hadn't actually noticed this before, but they fail. They fall asleep. And when Jesus comes back, he speaks specifically to Peter. All three of them fall asleep, but when he comes back, he says, could you not stay awake? And he addresses Peter as the leader of the disciples in this particular space. You can imagine what Peter might be starting to feel. 
Uh, I was supposed to be the one to help keep everybody awake. I was supposed to be the one to lead us in supporting Jesus, and now I've just been called out in my failure. That had to be tough for him to hear, especially after it happens the second time. Matthew 26, 45, Then Jesus returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Now, if I'm Peter in this moment, I put myself into his shoes, that, that moment of the second wake up, I can just, have, anybody, have any of you accidentally slept through an alarm and then had that jolt awake? Probably a lot of us, right? That feeling is the worst, right? Because what happens, all of a sudden, all your adrenaline starts running. And I, even if I get back on time, it takes me like an hour and a half to feel like I'm back on time. Is anyone else with me on that? You're like, you know that you're in the place you should be at the right time, but because you woke up late, you're, everything's still fly, flying, right? I, this, that's got to be heightened for Peter right here. Because Jesus wakes him up for a second time. He knows immediately I screwed up again. I was supposed to be awake. But then the comment after that, rise for my betrayer. Here comes my betrayer. That has got to send Peter just spinning. Because, let's put up this next picture here. This picture here is actually from the Garden of Gethsemane. I was able to be there this last year. I was in Israel. I don't know if you guys heard me say that. It was pretty cool. I may have mentioned it once or twice. But, but this is a picture from the Garden of Gethsemane. It still, it still exists today. It's a beautiful garden. They actually maintain it as a garden. Uh, it was a really powerful place, actually. It was one of my favorites. Um, but you can see uh, that it, while you're standing there in the garden, you can see the Temple Mount there. Uh, that's the Dome of the Rock. So that's, it is a Muslim mosque now, but that would have been where the temple is. Do you see that little like tower there on the right? That's where the, something called the Antonio for, for, Fortress would be. Uh, it's where the Roman troops would have lived. Where, it's also where uh, the temple um, our, uh, soldiers would have been, which are the ones that come to get Jesus. So what that, what that means is that path that's coming down from that tower on the right would be the path that the soldiers would have taken to come to the garden. Now, uh, you can kind of see it in this picture here. It's, there's a valley and then another hill, right? So it actually, you could start to see them walking down. You'd walk down into the valley, and then you come up into the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, on the, in, in some respects, those places are very close to each other, right? Obviously, standing in the Garden of Gethsemane, you can see the temple. It's not that far away. In other respects, though, because you have to go down and up, it's not a very short walk. Right? It takes you a little bit. So what Peter is immediately feeling is that if I had stayed awake, I would have seen the soldiers leave the Temple Mount, because they would have had torches, and I could have reacted before they got here. So if you've, ever wondered, if you've ever read through the stories of David in the Old Testament and wondered how they could yell at each other across gaps, when you actually are in Israel, it makes a lot more sense. So much of Israel is these dips and ups. And so even though you might be relatively close to each other, the distance to get there is long. And so if you're thinking that people are coming to attack you and you see them leave the Temple Mount, you have quite a bit of time to either, one, prepare your defenses if you're going to fight, or run away. And so Peter, waking up to realize, I just slept through them approaching, creates, has to create in him even more anxiety at this particular point. He's gotta, it's got to create a panic. If I had been awake, we could have prepared. We could have run. We could have fought. We could have done something. But now I'm awake and they're here already. But Peter's night gets even worse. 
Verse 51, then, then the men stepped forward. They seized Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. I want you to read this next line with some anger in it, because I think it's there. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do, not, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will put one, or at, and at once will put a disposal of more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would scripture be fulfilled that say this mu- it must happen this way? So it's interesting, because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they all tell this particular story. In all three of those Gospels, uh, it, it tells us that one of Jesus' companions or someone near to him, something like that, they don't name him, they use a generic term. But John decides to get a little bit more specific. When John tells this story in John 18.10, he says it this way, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So putting ourselves back in Peter's shoes, he's failed to stay awake twice when he was specifically asked only to be woken to soldiers approaching, right? The adrenaline that must have been pumping through him at that point, the feelings of guilt and regret and needing to make it up. So the feelings of shame or sadness or anger with himself, the anger with Judas, fear, because, right, Rome's coming. All of those emotions have to be running through him at that particular point. And so he jumps to the front of the pack, right? I failed to stay awake, but I won't fail now. might be what Peter's thinking. And so he pulls his sword and he swings. And we have to assume he swung badly uh, because an ear, right? Like, that's not usually what you're aiming at, right? He he misses. He's not a warrior, he was a fisherman. So he swings badly. That's not really the point. But But you can immediately then hear the anger in Jesus' voice. What are you doing, right? Bro, come on. I'm assuming that's how they talked back then. And then there's a subtle subtext that runs with it too. Jesus looks at Peter and says, put your sword away. And then says, essentially, do you really think so low of me and my power? Do you really think that if I didn't, if I didn't want, if I wanted to, I could just ask God to send angels and he wouldn't? Do you really not, don't think I can't fight my own battle here? Is the subtext of all of the things that Jesus is saying to Peter. Do you really think I needed you to do that? Along with the fact that Peter clearly had missed the point of what Jesus is trying to do. That had to sting, too. Unfortunately for Peter, his bad night's not over. After Jesus heals the man's ear, we're told that all the disciples run, assumingly so did Peter. Jesus is arrested and taken to the home of the high priest. The story picks back up in verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You were also with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway, where another servant girl saw him and the people there. This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the words that Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And so he went out and wept bitterly. 
In this story, Peter goes and then follows Jesus. I, again, we can't even, I can't even imagine what he's experiencing at this point. And so he hangs outside the high priest's home, and as we saw, it doesn't go well for him there either. Now, there, there are a couple of things to miss here. Verse 72. In verse 72, uh, we read over it quickly because it says, then he denied it again with an oath. We can quickly read over that and not think twice about it. But we gotta, you have to realize here that oaths are a very, very, very big deal in this culture. If you actually remember back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes as far as to say, don't make them. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because when you're making an oath in this particular time and place, what you're essentially saying is that God will hold me accountable. That if I am lying here, may, something may the gods do something bad to me. God, Yahweh in this case, or the gods if you're a pagan person in this, this culture. But the expectation is that that's actually what's going to happen. That I am taking on myself the judgment of the gods if I'm lying. Oaths are huge deals. They're different than promises that we make. To break an oath matters, in this, and it should matter in our culture too, but it, we all know it doesn't in the same way. Denying it again with an oath is essentially saying, I am not lying, and if I was, God can judge me for that. It's a big deal. Next, verse 74. At this time, people ask him again, I'm pretty sure you're, you're the dude that was with Jesus. And then it says he actually calls down curses on them. Now, in our culture, this doesn't make a lot of sense to us either, as we don't do that very often. We, call, we talk about cursing as essentially swearing, right? If I'm cursing, I'm swearing. Uh, this is not swearing. This is not just foul language. When you call down curses upon someone, you are actually asking the gods to do bad things to them. Curses were not viewed as trite, or they were viewed as significant and real. So what Peter is doing here is, is, is more than just using foul language. What he is saying is, I, I am calling down bad things to happen to you. If I am lying and you're accusing me of that, uh, you're because, I'm not lying, and because you're accusing me of that, curse you. God punish you for not believing me, essentially, is what Peter is saying. These are huge, huge things that he's doing. It's not just a simple denial. It's, he's, he's, going, he's continually making it worse. And that's our portrait of Peter in the midst of this. So let's reset a second. We have Judas and Peter, both failing epically, both betraying Jesus, both missing the mark or sinning in this case. We have oaths and curses. Both would fall under the judgment of God because for their failure in those spaces. And so what we see when we actually put Judas and Peter next to each other, for many of us, we think of Judas as horrible and Peter as good, but what they've done this particular night is not that different. Both of them have betrayed Jesus. Both of them have done it in an epic kind of way. Both of them have failed miserably. Peter and Judas aren't that different from each other. But also, they might not be very different from us. Have you ever been in a place where it felt like everything was falling apart? Where your life felt like a house of cards just about ready to topple? You poke the wrong one and it's all going to come tumbling down. Have you ever been in a place where your misunderstandings or mistakes began to compound on each other? Leading to failure after failure after failure. It's kind of what we see in Pete's story, right? 
Have you ever walked down the path of sin? Well, we mean that is something missing the mark and found it to be empty. Have you ever walked that path and it brought you to a place of serious consequences? Have you ever felt shame in your actions or the weight of your betrayal or that overwhelming feeling that you're just garbage, that you're unlovable, you're unredeemable, that you're no better than scum? I know I have. Been times in my life where I've been in that space. It's a nasty space, isn't it? And I wish there were there weren't so many of you that probably have been there too. But as so many of us know, this is unfortunately a far too common human experience, isn't it? And maybe you're here in that space right now this morning. If that's you, I'm sorry about that. I've been there myself, and it is miserable. But let's see how the story ends. Also, warning, this next part is hard. Uh, it's one of, in my opinion, one of the saddest um, pieces of Scripture. Um, it can be triggering a little bit too, so I'm sorry. But Matthew 27, 3. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I've sinned, he said, for I've betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. This part of the story absolutely breaks my heart. It's hard for me to read uh, because I can relate to it. Judas, the same guy who we painted a picture of earlier, betrays Jesus for whatever reason, He has a plan or an idea or whatever, but then he sees the consequences of his actions and it wasn't what he expected. Now, I've been there. Maybe you have too. Right in your own head, you create this narrative. You're doing something you know isn't right, but you can create, we're really, really good at creating internal justifications, aren't we? Well, I'm doing this thing, but, and it's easy to continue to do that, to walk our way itself down a path. Until all of a sudden, something happens and our eyes are opened. The place we thought we were isn't the place we actually are. That's what happens to Judas. Whatever internal justification he had been doing, when he sees Jesus arrested and beaten, his eyes are open and he's like, how did I get here? This isn't where I meant to be. Things opened up and all of a sudden he gets his oh crap moment. I messed up. This is not what I wanted. This is not what I wanted to happen. Judas sees what's happened and his internal story breaks. His eyes are open and the weight of his choices come crashing down on him. Now, if you've ever been in that place, it's a scary and overwhelming place to be, isn't it? Now, what makes me so sad, though, is what happens next. See, Judas sees what he's done, and it breaks him. Again, another argument for him not being just a horrible person. Horrible people do bad things and then go to bed. Judas did a bad thing, and when his eyes are open, and he realizes, I don't want to be here. So it breaks Judas, and he feels the full weight of it. He's betrayed an innocent person. And so what does he do? He actually goes and tries to make it right. 
We can miss that. He goes back, in his mind at least, to God. In a world pre-resurrection, where do you go to be made right with God? You go to the temple, right? That's the system that God himself set up in the Old Testament. So what happens then? Well, when you believe you can't go back to Jesus because you just betrayed him, and then the temple rejects you, you're left feeling hopeless, right? Completely hopeless. There's nowhere else to go. So hopeless that in his mind, there's no point in going on, which I think is absolutely heartbreaking. Since I've made the argument, I don't think Judas is a bad guy at his core. He's a person who did a very bad thing. But, but he's not that much different than what Peter did. So what about Peter? Now we have to jump Gospels to find out what happens with Peter. Matthew doesn't tell us, but John does. Quickly setting the stage, Jesus has died. He's risen from the dead. And, and this part is really important. He's already shown himself to the disciples. And even Peter more than once. This will be the third time he actually uh, is interacting with his disciples. But then we fast forward to John 21, where Peter is in a boat fishing, which matters as well. Because what that means is that he's back doing what he used to do. Peter was a fisherman when Jesus called him. Peter is now back fishing, which means he doesn't see himself now as a leader of a new movement at all. He sees himself as just a fisherman. He was the leader of the disciples, right? On, Peter, on you, Peter, I'll build my church, Jesus said. But he had already blown that opportunity in his mind, so now he's nothing but a fisherman. So John 21, 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he says, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. Because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all these things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, there is a ton we could talk about in this particular passage, but I want to go super quick here. See, the Greek matters a lot here. In English, we have one word for love. In Greek, there are four. In this particular passage, two different ones are being used. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And he uses the word agape, which is this completeness of love. Peter responds by saying, I do love you, but he uses the word philo, which is where we get Philadelphia from, and it's like a brotherly or friendship kind of love. It's different. It's less than. Agape is a greater love than philo is. So Jesus asked, do you agape me? And Peter responds with, I philo you. So Jesus asks again, Pete, that's not what I asked. Do you agape me? Peter responds a second time, I philo you. Why? Most people would argue it's because Peter is being honest. That he's still wrestling with that night. It's still owning him. Inside of Peter, he's going, I had a chance to show you that I agape you. But I failed beyond miserably. 
And so I can't honestly say that I do because my actions don't line up with it. And so Jesus asks a third time, Pete, brother, do you follow me? Jesus switches his word. And that's why Peter's hurt. When it says because he asked him if he loved him, Philo is in both of those spaces. And his response says so much. He says, I know you're God. You know everything. So you know my Philo is real, is what Pete says. And so Jesus follows that up by letting Peter know the mission that he was given has not been taken from him. On this rock, on you, Pete, even after everything that happened, my church will be built. It's beautiful. Jesus restores Peter back to the position he was in. Now, I think these two stories are powerful for this time of the year because they show us what Christmas is all about. So many of us can relate to both Peter and Judas's story. So many of us understand shame. We understand guilt. We understand the feelings of not being good enough or a failure. We understand self-loathing. Far too many of us have, have those one or two things from our past that live rent-free in our head and that just love to pop up at those terrible moments. Isn't that the worst? Where you can be sitting somewhere and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it feels like that memory of that thing that makes your face hot again comes back. Has no one else experienced that? That's a, that's, that's a big deal. Maybe you're here this morning and feel like what you've done is unredeemable, that there's no way you can be restored, that what you've done is too bad or too painful or too destructive. Many of us have been there. I've been there. It's a terrible place to be. So I want to say to you this morning, if you are there, if you're in a place where you feel like you're not worth anything, if you're in a place where you feel like what you've done is too much to ever be redeemed of, if you're in a place where you feel like you're worthless or scum or any of those things, please, please know that that one is not true, but please talk with somebody. I'm begging you. I'm available. There are a lot of people who are available. Don't go through it alone. When we go through those things alone is the space where we start to believe things about ourselves that just aren't true where we start to feel hopeless like Judas did, where there's no place for us to go and then there's only one way out. That's not true. Peter and Judas both were wrestling with those things and their stories have profoundly different outcomes. Judas doesn't go back to Jesus. Like we mentioned earlier, he did go back to his perception of God, but not to Jesus. And unfortunately, because of the system, and not to God either. Judas went to find redemption from a corrupt religious system. We've actually seen that throughout the book of Matthew, which rejected him, only making his sorrow worse. Unfortunately, there might be some of you here that can all too closely relate to that story, too. Perhaps, like Judas, when your eyes were opened, you went to a church. And you were rejected. Fortunately, I've heard that story far too often. Where people have gone to try to find some kind of uh, life in God and in a church and only found rejection instead. If that's your story, 
The first thing I want to say, on, as much as I can speak on behalf of the church, and I'm just one person, but I want to just apologize. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so sorry for that. It's not, it was not okay. That's not rep, our, what we're supposed to be doing here. That's not a representation of God. And if you've been hurt that way, I just, I'm sorry for that. I know how painful and deep those things can be. That was not God. That was broken people following the way of, or that was, that was broken people not following the way of Jesus. See, church, that's something that we do need to take seriously. Realize that we are a religious institution. Our response to people wrestling with sin matters a lot. And the outcome of that is shown in this story. How we respond to everyone who is hurting and broken into our spaces matters a lot. Because it can, it, because it can change their perception of God. Now, we are not God, clearly, but some people will see it that way. For some people, how we respond to their pain or hurting or what they're going through will become their perception of who God is for a long time. We have a very big responsibility here. Judas goes to an institution and finds it lacking. And as a result, the worst consequence that he could experience happens. And that's where he differs from Peter. So we know Peter sticks around. We know from the resurrection story he's one of the first people to get to the tomb. He might not feel like he can lead anymore, but he's stuck around Jesus. He goes to him when Jesus calls on the beach, if you read the story right before the one we read. And he's honest with himself and with Jesus about the mistakes that he's made. And what he experiences then, and in that meeting with Jesus, he's told that his value is secure. That even though he's made mistakes, even though that he's failed, he's still valuable in Jesus' eyes. But not only that, his mission is too. That even though he's blown it epically, Jesus still says to Peter, on you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church. You see, redemption comes through going back to Jesus, actually Jesus, not through a religious institution or structure. You see, the foundational message of the gospel is this. The foundational message of, of Christmas is this as well, that while we were still sinners, Christ came for us. That sin, does, that sin in our lives does damage. The things we do are not okay. They're not. What Judas did was not okay. What Peter did was not okay. The things Brent did in his past were not okay. I caused harm to myself and others, and I still do from time to time. That's just a fact. It is what it is. But the message of Christmas, the message in this story is that regardless of those things, you are okay in Jesus. Your value is secure. Your value matters. You may have to deal with the consequences of your bad choices. Bad choices you've made, that's real. And that may be painful still. But it doesn't change the fact that Jesus declared, declares you are loved, that you are valuable, that you are okay in me. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that's compelling. 
If you've been around church, that's not a unique or new message that's been taught. But it is one that I don't think that we let sink all the way down into our souls. Everything that we do in our Christian life pours out of that belief. The reason the gospel message is compelling is because it says that you are loved and cared for, and then out of that pours their love and care for everyone else. If we don't believe that about ourselves, it makes things really weird really fast. Either we start to live in a shame cycle in which we think we can't be good enough or loved by God, so how could we love anyone else? Or it puts us into a place in which we have to prove that we're good enough. And that's when we get really weird by starting knocking people down so we can feel better. None of those are the gospel message. The gospel message for both Judas and Peter, I believe, is that if, no matter how badly we've messed up, that we can come back to Jesus and find value again. And so I want to encourage you this morning, with whatever you're going through, to take account of that to yourself. Do you believe this message that Jesus gives that says you are loved regardless of what you've done, that what you've done has been paid for even if you still have to experience some of the consequences from your choices? Do you believe that you are loved? Do you believe that, that, that that's inherent in each person that we see? And can you let that sink deeply into your soul? If you can, then you can live into the mission that Jesus reinstates with Peter, the mission we talked about last week, the mission that we're here, in, that we're here as a church to, to accomplish, is that we own the truth of God's love for ourselves in Jesus. Not so that we can just hang out and become a cool religious institution here, but because that's the message that the world needs to hear so incredibly desperately. I think more now than ever before in in my lifetime, at least and probably in a few generations. We have a group of people in the world who are confused, who are lost, and who do not feel valuable. The statistics around mental health are staggering of people who don't feel like they're good enough or have accomplished enough or valued or cared for. The the statistics around students in particular are devastating and tragic. We have a society that has built a space in which we have all we do is lie to each other and market to each other. If you're a Gen Z-er, right, if you were born in Gen Z, Literally all the truth that, almost all the truth that's been spoken to you has been done with a spin to sell you something, right? You live in in an era in which all the things that are being shared are to sell you something, to manipulate into you, to buying something. It's a promise over and over and over again. If only you could get this thing, then your life would be good. It's literally the marketing strategy of the world, America, whatever. It's promises of fullness and joy and value to be only met with emptiness over and over and over and over and over again. It's not surprising that we have a a whole generation of disillusioned people that are continually chasing these things and continually feeling not valuable because there's no way to get it all. And even if you did, there would be no value in it anyway. The message of the gospel is you don't need all of that. That your value is inherent in the fact that you're loved by Jesus. That message, if we don't grasp it for ourselves, we lose traction in the world, which we can see all the way around us. 
It's also a message that desperately needs to be shared. I believe the gospel can change the world because of the story that we saw today. Two contrasting stories of people who have experienced what so many of us have experienced before. One, finding a restoration in his life because he decided that to allow God's value to rest in him. The other, tragically not. I hope that Judas got another opportunity to go to Jesus and that we get to hang out with him for eternity. That would be great. I don't know. It's not for me to judge. But we do get to see the brokenness in his life here. So just close today with that challenge. When you leave today, consider who may need to hear that they're loved and valued. Who can you show just a little taste of what it means to experience the fullness of God no matter what we've done or where we've been and how might that change things? You pray with me? Father God, we come before you today just realizing that so many of us have fallen short in so many different ways. We've done things we're not proud of. We've hurt people or ourselves in ways that we're not proud of. Maybe even we're even still doing that now. God, we pray you help us to see the weight of our mistakes, to break our self-justification, so that we can be free of the burden that it causes. And God, ultimately we pray that your spirit fill each of us so that we, real, that we can see ourselves through your eyes, not as unredeemable or unloved or scum, but instead as beloved children of yours. God, we pray that you give us the ability to share that message with the world, the gospel message of the value found in Jesus. Amen.